Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we are doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hello, I am Ai-jen Poo. And I'm Alicia Garza, and we are beyond excited for our guest today. Beyond. Like when we say we are super fans, we are not kidding. We have been circling each other and following our guest, Alice Wong, for years now. Alice is a visionary in disability advocacy, the founder of Disability Visibility Project, the editor of two anthologies featuring disabled voices, and her memoir, Year of the Tiger, coming out in 2022, and we can't wait. Alice, the warmest sunstorm welcome to you. Hello, my ray of sunshine. So Alice, I want to start off just by kind of talking with you a little bit about disability and who disabled people are. And one of the things I think makes your work not just essential, but critical and powerful is that you challenge beliefs about what disability is and what it ain't and who disabled people are. And over the years, I'm just wondering, like, have you had to challenge your own beliefs about disability, even though you identify as disabled? How have you reckoned with that? And what can that maybe offer for other people who are trying to be better community members as it relates to disability? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I would say, you know, first off, disabled people are everywhere. They're, they're part of every community. And I would say that the way that my own beliefs had to be challenged and frankly alert is really because I was made to feel that my world, their my lived experience was small. They had an outlier of what's considered normative. That was born disabled in the early 70s. They are about to approach 48 this year. And, you know, I feel like there's a constant alerting and unpacking I have to do. And it took me a really long time to kind of identify and even feel as a surprise because. You know, let's face it, like capitalism, normalcy is a scam. Yeah, I love that. Normalcy is a scam. It's the truth. You know, and I think a lot of people don't realize that there's this whole history of disability rights activism and movement building. The movement has been around for a long, long time. And powerful slogans and frames like nothing about us without us have come from this movement. I'm wondering for those of us sunstormers who are listening and may not be as familiar with the movement, what are some things that you think every movement can learn from this whole trajectory of activism and organizing? You know, so much of this is rooted in being marginalized and living in a world that was never built for you. And I think just, you know, people on the margins uh, truly understand power better. They understand who is centered. And I think this is, uh, this brings a sharper analysis of the way we move in the world. And 
you know, somebody days on days to feel like it, it's a, at an individual level in terms of, you know, causes of problems or, you know, issues that are often reduced to an individual level, but what really it's about systems. And I think a lot of marginalized groups understand how systems work in terms of the way they punish, the way they criminalize, and the way they pathologize people. And I think that disabled people, especially, let's say, disabled people involved in progressive politics and community organizing, they have such a wealth of experiences that I do not think most change makers or even, let's, you know, I'm using air quotes, you know, good progressives, you know, these well-being kind of people want to be allies, but they won't, let's say, have a alt text in their images or they might complain about somebody's podcast that have a strips and, uh, you know, access is for everyone. And when you build your work or when you build anything, think about the people that are missing. Think about who, you know, who it was missing. And to not be fragile and not be defensive when somebody says, um, hey, you know, I would love to join this webinar that you're organizing on voting rights, but uh, I don't see it as a separate interpreter. Let's be proactive. And if people really want to build coalitions, they will include higher, frankly, Mm -hmm. value and pay disabled people to be part of their staff. And I want to see disabled people in leading roles across all sorts of movements. Just that's, you know, I think when we have disabled people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. leading the way, because this should make every, every movement better. You know, I was reading our background notes on you, Alice, and there was something that you said that I found very profound. You talked about how being an activist was not a choice for you, but it was an act of survival. You've also talked about the ways in which you've struggled, right, with being called an activist, right, because of the way that we talk about what activism looks like and what it's rooted in. So how did you go from that point to where you are now, which is advocating for others, creating space for others, and also working with others and organizing for systemic change? You know, I really didn't have a choice as a young disabled child because there just really wasn't any support or recognition of what I needed or wanted. I didn't even have felt like I had permission to say no. Here I am almost 48 years later going through having gone through this pandemic and I'm still fighting really hard uh, just to survive. You know, just this past pandemic we've seen uh, so many groups including disabled and older folks as disproportionately impacted. You know, so many of us uh, are at higher risk for getting the virus, are at higher risk for dying for the virus. I was pretty outspoken last year 
telling my own story as somebody who uses a ventilator about my fears because uh, in times of crisis, you know, our society really shows who is disposable. And, uh, you know, hospitals, some of them were, they had triage protocols. They were, you know, healthcare allocation. Where, you know, they were going to decide patients who uh, deserved care, those who did it, those who were going to be deprioritized for care. There's so much of this is just not ableism and racism. And the fact that eugenic ideas, you know, like the idea that some bodies, some lived experiences, some abilities are much more valued than others. Eugenics is very much alive today. And I think this is something I wish more people understood. 2020 was a shit year, right? And I thought, okay, 2021, mm-hmm. we're going to get through this together. But, you know, again, I was really forced in a position mm-hmm. to survive and also create kind of as much kind of media and community and ways for us to really push back against all the forces that basically do not care if we die. And I know that sounds overdramatic, but it really isn't. And, you know, the clearest example of that is vaccine equity. And very clearly, the horrible rollout. Well, I wish I didn't have to survive to have worked so hard. I, I actually feel like that the word resilience is something I try not to use too often because I feel like that is again mm-hmm. a focus on the individual mm-hmm. versus the tribunal or the collective or systemic. And mm-hmm. that to me is where why do we consider it? a compliment to be considered a survivor or resilience when we don't really interrogate the conditions that created this. Anybody who struggles, whether you're an activist or a movement maker, we deserve rest. We deserve all the flowers while we're still alive. We deserve luxuries. Big as small, they don't have to be material, but we deserve it all. And I think beautiful. We sometimes feel like there's another aspect of activism, or maybe just the perception of activism that mm-hmm. there's some sort of weird purity that, like, if you are a real activist, if you're down with mm-hmm. the people, you have to suffer, or that you have to. You know, sacrifice. You have to put your literal body on the line, mm-hmm. or you know mm-hmm. that you have to live in poverty. And I feel like those things really mm-hmm. keep a lot of people out. I want to say that like, community organizers really try to open up and try to be people where they are. I think that's the only way 
to build travel sheets. There really is a way to build cross-movement solidarity. I want to talk a little bit about solidarity. Um, you know, Alicia and I have been in the domestic workers movement for a long time, and this is a another group that has been treated as disposable and a place in our economy and in our society where you can see very clearly that there is a hierarchy, right? A hierarchy of human value. And one thing that I learned early on is that people with disabilities have also been excluded in our law and policy, right? In all of our systems, but specifically in the same minimum wage laws that domestic workers were excluded from. And that it is perfectly legal to pay a person with disabilities less than minimum wage mm -hmm. for working. And that is absolutely unacceptable. And there's so much potential there. If we start to recognize all the ways in which different communities have been disenfranchised through exclusion. And if we were to all come together, um, like you have talked about and, and catalyzed in your hashtag, I think that we would have the power to change so much. And one of the things that's been so inspiring to me in this moment is to see worker rights groups, domestic workers, home care workers, unions, join together with disability advocates and older adults and family caregivers to fight for a care infrastructure that actually supports dignity, independence, and quality of life for everyone. I want to talk for a minute about this piece of the Biden jobs plan that specifically invests in home and community-based services for people with disabilities and older people. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that has been a rallying cry for the disability community for such a long time? Well, I feel like there have been decades of, you know, centuries of people who have been segregated and institutionalized. And if we really want to care about you know, collective liberation, you know, our freedom is tied up with your freedom. And that, you know, to institutions, to be honest, long-term care facilities, nursing homes are, you know, forms of incarceration. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of potential in terms of so many people that are abolitionists who are also disabled as well. And I think that's terribly exciting to see. But also, I think there's a you know, policy priority where by seeing care work is infrastructure. It really is a statement of how important you know, and how interconnected we are. For reaching a window to where there is a real potential to, to make the entire ecosystem better for everyone. You know, for a long time, I think still, even now, disabled people still have to be 
has to be included. And, you know, just to be a little bit salty with you both, you know, I see a lot of conversations, panels, that, you know, conferences about voter care or caregiving that tend to be centered on providers and advocates mm-hmm. and family members and politicians and policy experts. Mm-hmm. But it's still actually rare mm-hmm. to see a range of actual users of voter care, both people living in the community and in institutional settings. And, you know, there's something also about events that tend to silo disabled people at conferences where it's about disability rights or accessibility. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, we have such Mm -hmm. rich knowledge and wisdom about policies and the way these do and do not work because we're we're best in these systems. And that is something that just as a gentle calling to people to really be mm-hmm. mindful of that. And I'm also just, you know, like mm-hmm. the bar is so low to say we deserve to be included. But I do think, you know, with this, hopefully this movement, this project movement, to uh, have your work funded, fully funded, and really robust, I think, uh, it's going to be wonderful in terms of protections for workers and valuing workers, but also really uh, reflective of what disabled people need or want. I think that's an important point. And, you know, I had not thought about the experience of caregiving inside of institutions. And I think it would be a very helpful perspective to help round out right? Um, How we're talking about caregiving. So thank you for that. I do have a question for you. Um, Just following on this kind of continuum of care and caregiving and COVID. You know, we've talked about going back to normal, (laughs) right? And I know in in our conversation today, you know, we do have to be mindful of language because words mean things and words set precedent, they set tone. And so we've been using these words talking about this pandemic where we're talking about going back to normal when things were not actually normal before and they were not good before. And then we've also been talking about where we're headed. And there were a lot of things in an uncertain terrain that did not go well. We saw the best of each other and we saw the worst of each other. And it was all on display in this last year and a half in ways that I actually think were really important for the country. My question for you, Alice, is in this moment that has been so indelibly shaped by COVID-19, what can we learn about care? And what would you say about what we can bring forward from this moment about care that really 
we need to keep doing? And what are some of the things that this moment is giving us an opportunity to just say, hey, we're not doing this like this anymore. We deserve better. We've got to be better for each other, for the world, and for our communities. The first response is the last year during this day of order for March, for March and December last year, I only went out once in my entire time for the flu vaccine. And uh, even now, uh, in 2021, I've only been out twice to get my COVID vaccine. And I know that people are just like ready for a hot girl summer. And I just let it all hang out and I I feel this, but also, you know, I don't feel 100% safe. And I know that a lot of people with it, you know, the various disability and traumatic illness communities don't feel safe yet. Uh, we still have a lot of people that are not vaccinated. We have people that make fast weary somehow a political thing. So like there's still a lot of danger out there. And I think for me, what I learned about GR is that every person has the capacity to care. It's not this kind of one directional kind of relationship where I give you care. Mm-hmm. And then you know you receive the care. I also think that care is not transactional, right? Like, I care about you, but it's not because you care about me, you know, even though yeah. that would be nice, you know? But I think that it's not transactional. And our society loves to monetize things at the core of it. Care is not transactional. What I learned about from disability justice some of the, you know, principles for disability justice, which, you know, shout out to the Bay Area. It was <laughs> originated around 20, 2005 by queer disabled women of color. Uh, but, you know, some of the principles are hold this, you know, that mm. you are perfect as you are. So that speaks to me about self-love and self-care. But also, you know, no one gets left behind. And this idea that we bring everybody with us, and that to me is a form of care. Because, you know, at the end, you know, liberation is not going to happen until it really reaches everyone. And I think that's, that's a further extension of what we need by care and feel like interdependence. Like, you know, I would love to see during the pandemic, see the way mutual aid has really flourished. And I would love to see this become more commonplace, you know, not just in times of crisis. I love language to my friends over the pandemic as somebody who's not really seen my friends in a long time. Uh, you know, I like to send gifts, like little cards, handwritten letters, and uh, this week in particular, 
I sent a few friends uh, cakes that are rainbow cakes for pride. I'm so excited because I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you get a cake, you get a cake. You know, everybody to get all the cakes, you know, all the cookies, yeah. get all the things, all the treats, whatever gets you going. But that's been my love language and a way to show care. I think we can all be very creative in how we show care because that shows that they are wanted and that they belong. That's what care is about. We are all care recipients and providers, and we should be more creative, including sending rainbow cakes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Both, but especially rainbows, like this. All the mm. glitter, all the rainbows, just oh, whatever yeah. makes you happy. You're making me want to put on my rainbow earrings. I want to talk about your memoir, talk to us about the Year of the Tiger, and um, give our listeners a sense of what they can expect and why they need to hustle, hustle, hustle to get it on pre-order when it's ready. <laughs> well, I'm very excited about my memoir. And- you know, I am turning 48 next year, which is hey. the year of the tiger. I'm so, a tiger too. You and me. Tiger, tiger power. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. This is wonderful. Uh, but you know, I'm really excited about this memoir because I want it to be fun. It's not going to be mm. okay. full of trauma. It's going to be embedded in joy and pleasure. And it's going to be also about the work. And I do hope that, you know, one of the audiences is really for activists because I can't think of another memoir or book by an Asian American disabled activist, like about activism. You know, frankly, uh, one thing that I'm super salty about, that's why I do my work, is the fact that so much of what we think of as disability rights and disability representation mm-hmm. is overwhelmingly white. So, you know, part of the joy and uh, privilege of doing what I do is to really amplify disabled people of color. So I think uh, I really do hope that this book speaks to so many different groups. It cuts across different communities. It's for the all my mm-hmm. Asian American movies. It's all, all of my disabled movies, but also to any kind of baby activist or community organizer. It's not a blueprint, but really just an invitation to this is how I got to be where I'm at. And hopefully it'll be helpful because, you know, I think there needs to be more diverse depictions of what activism looks like. It's not glamorous. A lot of people just don't know what, what's evolved. I love this. So basically you're telling us what we can expect from your book is like you wrapped up in a little package <laughs> that when we open the book, we get all your sunbeams, all your layers, and we get your joy. Yes. I'm really excited to read it. Can you tell us when it's coming out? Yeah, so I think it's going to be out the fall. 
Lee 2022. Uh, both of you looked at an autographed copy. This is the worst source of like joy for 2021 for me. Oh, it makes me so happy. Thank you so much, Alice, for all of your wisdom and your work and for bringing so much joy to us and to everybody else. Please make sure to follow Alice in all of the places at SF Direwolf and Disability Visibility. You will learn so much and smile so much. And as soon as you can, pre-order her memoir, Year of the Tiger. And then, of course, go ahead and get those two anthologies she has also edited. We cannot wait. Come on. Thank you all. And we will catch you next week. Love you, fam. Thanks, you, fam. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Alice. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, and Christina Mevs Apgar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. The three of us are sun babes. Jody <laughs> right through the clouds, <laughs> right into the eye of her cheeks. <laughs>